candidly, the reason I think the avalanche community is so compelling is because the community has been through so much loss together and has been connected in a lot of ways and has elders that speak into this and say, this is how it goes. And this is what we're going to do next. And that's what makes it a place that people want to be a part of. This is Laura McGladry, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned into episode 5.2 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by MND Safety, a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside with additional support from InterWest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, we are certainly rolling through October here, it seems like. There are definitely some places in the the western United States and Canada at least that are starting to have some snow sprinkled on the higher peaks um, certainly pretty early to get a snowpack developing here and and of course oftentimes those early snowfalls can turn into persistent weak layers plaguing the snowpack later in the season so make sure you keep a keep an eye on your local zones and See where that snow is, see where it isn't, and see what the upcoming weather might do to the snowfall that's on the ground. I'm sure many of you were in attendance of the virtual snow science workshop last week put on by the fine folks in Fernie. Um, Again, thanks to them for all their hard work to to put that on. Um, An international event, certainly, certainly no easy feat. I've been on the road without solid internet lately, so unfortunately I wasn't able to live stream any of that, but I do look forward to catching up once I get home. Hit me up. Let me know what presentations or panel discussions really spoke to you um, as you were watching that. Um, Let's start a conversation about it. I'd like to kick off this episode with um, a greeting from Dan Caveney the executive director of the American Avalanche Association. So take it away, Dan. This is Dan Caveney, the executive director of the American Avalanche Association, or A3 as we like to call it. Thanks so much, Caleb, for inviting me to be here on the Avalanche Hour. I'm a big fan, so it's always exciting for me to be at least a small part of it. As I think most of your listeners know, the A3 has been keeping people safe in avalanche country since 1986. We emphasize three different sets of activities, education and professional development, publishing, and outreach. Today, I'd like to update everyone about our plans for the 2020-21 season um, as as they've been impacted by COVID-19. I'll start with the good news. Even though the pandemic's been very hard on many nonprofits, we're in good shape and seem to be weathering this thing pretty well. Earlier this year, when it became clear that COVID was going to be with us for a while, the board and I began discussing what A3 should be doing that would most benefit the Avalanche community. 
After a lot of deliberation, the board has instructed me to focus on those things that build and maintain community, by which they basically mean things that benefit the most members the most directly. So in the service of that goal, we're going to be emphasizing a number of different programs this coming season. First, we're continuing to emphasize membership. We can't keep people updated on developments in the avalanche world if they're not members. This year, we've instituted a pay-what-you-can renewal program for those members whose livelihoods have been affected by COVID. It's pretty informal, so if you'd like to take advantage of it, if you think you'd benefit from it, please drop me an email at dan at avalanche.org, and we'll work something out for you. We're also continuing to emphasize snow and avalanche workshop grants. And I'm pleased to be able to report that we were able to at least maintain funding levels relative to last year for all of the SAWs who applied for a grant this season. I've long thought that publishing was an important glue that helped hold A3 and the Avalanche community together. And publishing is going to continue to be an important part of our program this coming winter. First, we'll continue to publish and mail the print version of the Avalanche Review as normal. So there won't be any changes there. I'm also excited to be able to announce the launch of a new digital version of the Avalanche Review that you can see now at theavalanchereview.org. This isn't just a recapitulation of the printed version of the journal. The digital version will feature timeless, classic articles we think everybody's going to want at their fingertips, timely articles that involve current events that we think people will want to read right away, as well as articles that benefit from the rich media it's so much fun to do on the internet. So I hope you'll all check it out. Again, it's theavalanchereview.org. I think it's a valuable addition to A3's publishing program. We've long printed and sold snow, weather, and avalanches observation guidelines for avalanche programs in the United States and the snowy torrents. And we're still doing that. So those of you who would like printed copies of the book, you can log on to AmericanAvalancheAssociation.org, go to the store, and buy yourself a copy. This year, though, we're also offering free downloads of these publications at the store. We want to get this information out there without the barrier of a price. And since I've announced the program, we've had hundreds of downloads, so it seems to be working. So if you want one of those copies of the book, you can go get one for free now. I'm also very excited to announce a new seminar series that we're introducing this winter. Uh, the seminars will be held once each month. They'll be online, of course, and they'll take place in November, December, January, February, and March of this coming season. They're free for A3 members. The first seminar will be held right after the A3 general member meeting, which is scheduled for 6 p.m. this coming November 5th. The speaker is going to be Dr. George Lowenstein, who is the Herbert A. Simon Professor of Economics and Psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Lowenstein is one of the founders of the field of behavioral economics and was once shortlisted for the Nobel Prize. His talk will be entitled Behavioral Economics and Avalanche Decision-Making. I think it's going to be a fascinating talk, so I hope you will all log on and check it out. Uh, A3 members should keep an eye out for an email from me that will have the details about how to do that. We're continuing to support the pro training program this winter, 
and pro training providers are all offering courses. You can find out who the pro training providers are by going to avalanche.org. If you are interested in taking a pro course, uh, sign up soon because I know the courses are filling fast. Unfortunately, in order to be able to emphasize these things, we've had to put a couple other important things on hold for just this one year. So during the 2020-21 season, we will not be offering research grants or scholarships. We think these things are very important, um, and we plan on reinstituting them in 2021-22, but given all the uncertainties we're facing right now, it seemed wisest to put them on temporary hold. All in all, I think things are looking pretty good, and if you're not a member yet, I hope you'll consider joining us. You can get all the information you need to do that by writing an email to join at avalanche.org, and it will kick you back a note telling you how to join up. So anyway, thank you, Caleb, for having me. Um, It's been a real pleasure, and I'd be happy to hear from any of the listeners um, about A3, um, and I can be reached again at dan at avalanche.org. All right. Well, certainly if you're listening to this podcast and you're not already a member of the A3, now's the time to secure your membership, um, help support a great organization that's really the glue that holds our community together. Um, and thanks to the board of directors and, and Dan, everybody that's helping to steer the ship through stormy seas these days. So we appreciate you all. I'm excited to share this next interview with you all, this great interview with Laura McGladry, where we dive into some topics of stress injuries and some of the reactions that our our minds and our bodies can take through dealing with um, the things that we deal with in the backcountry uh, winter environment, whether it's, whether it's for work or for recreation. Um, so th- there certainly was a time in my career early on where I, I probably would have scoffed at talking about this, um, but I'm, I'm certainly recognizing that the times are changing and we need to deal with these emotions and these feelings um, that, that result from um, continued exposure to dealing with hard things as we do in our profession and our recreational avenues within the winter backcountry environment. Laura, welcome to the show. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking the time to be on the show today. Laura McGladry has a lot of letters behind her name. I'm not sure what all of them mean, but I know what some of them mean. Um, Laura's a a veteran of the National Outdoor Leadership School, both as a wilderness instructor as well as an emergency medicine instructor. Um, Laura's also a nurse practitioner specializing in psychology um and she's also a pioneer of bringing awareness to stress injuries and um bringing about some tools to help the rescuer laura what else what else is uh within your background give us a little bit more there about your background and how you got to where you are today Oh, well, it was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) That's probably how that should start out. Um, Yeah, so I've been teaching wilderness medicine for a long, long time and 
um, working in the emergency department for a lot of years. And so um, I, I worked both in the ER and got my early start as a raft guide, dirt bag, sleeping in my car, like most of us. Um, and then working with volunteer ALS ski patrol and working internationally for Knowles, uh, et cetera. But it, probably after international work, I got a real, had a real curiosity about what happens with overwhelming stress and trauma. And um, I was already a nurse practitioner in the emergency department. So I went back for uh, another certification in psych mental health. So these days I'm uh, at the University of Colorado. I'm a clinician in my, I'm at the Stress Trauma Adversity Research and Treatment Clinic. Now, if that doesn't sound like a fun job, <laughs> uh, it's called the Start Clinic. But my mandate there is actually urban law enforcement, fire, dispatch, EMS. So I work um, with urban firefighters and law enforcement, et cetera. But because of my background, that seems to extend into the national parks and LE climbing rangers. I work with a lot of um, rescue teams, helicopter teams in the parks, and then also still embedded on a few patrols. Um, and a shout out to my people at Portland Mountain Rescue as well. I'm still part of that team. All right. So you, so you work very much within your community. These are your people, right? These first responders, these climbers, these skiers, these ski patrollers, um, these guides, these, these search and rescuers. And so, um, was there a significant event in your life that, that took place to really spur you on to diving into the realm of, of caring for people with, Maybe we can refer to it as stress injuries. Is that the correct term? That's great. Yep. That is the term we're using now. Man, that's an interesting question. You know, I, as I mentioned, when I came back from, you know, I was, I was a solid 15 years into um, emergency medicine, volunteer rescue. Um, and like I said, ALS ski patrol and some of these, you know, just what I would call concentrated trauma right? I would call it concentrated exposure where you, you know, in my day job at a level one trauma center, you just have sort of sad thing after sad thing happens. So that had been accumulating. Um, I think that probably my work in South Sudan, just seeing a lot of hard things continuously probably led me to kind of a depletion state and curiosity. So yeah, I think in my own journey, I probably reached that point where I had a case of the Iustas, mm. uh, which is the, I used to want to do this. I used to want to leave the country. I used to want to go to my job in the emergency department. Uh, maybe what the military calls motivational exhaustion. Mm. Which I've felt. Um, and so that, I guess uh, that was a curiosity to me. I was at the top of my game, you know, you climb humanitarian aid up there with MSF and the ER and patrol, all the things you're supposed to do. And I was like, why don't I feel like doing this stuff anymore? And so the good news is I followed that curiosity to traumatic stress and how it formed. And I've got an answer like, Oh, this is a stress injury. And, uh, and once I knew what it was, I could start to mitigate it and support reversing it. So, um, yeah, so I, I didn't know actually until well into doing this work though. I, was um, I recently went paddling again with a friend that had been 20 years and I realized that I walked away from paddling the day that I lost a, a close friend of mine that I learned to paddle with. Um, and it wasn't until I got back on the river, 
that I realized, man, I, I had a stress injury in this area and I walked away just like I talk about climbers and ski mountaineers doing all the time. So I guess I do have some of my own kind of, um, we, none of us do this work without having just a little bit of your own story mixed in there. Sure. Well, and, I, and I've heard you say before, I, I should mention that I first heard you speak on the Sharp End podcast with Ashley, another great podcast that all the listeners mm-hmm. should check out. Um, and, and I heard you say something along the lines of just putting to putting a name to it is yes. really empowering, right? And so like maybe part of the the reason this is so hard to talk about is because we have all these feelings, you know, after a, a cumulative string of events or just after years of seeing even minor things that are affecting other people's lives and our own lives. We have all these feelings that are bottled up and we don't know how to deal with them, right? We don't even know why we're feeling in a way that is not normal to us. So, um, one of my hopes through this talk today is just to bring a greater awareness to to the fact that this is going on and and we can put a name to it and and validate those feelings, right? Yeah, I I truly think a lot of us just end up feeling like it's just me. Mm. This is just how I am and um I know we talked about this on on the on the podcast with Ashley as well, but one of the things I see so much without naming an injury type is that people just feel like this is what happened to me. I became this type of person that doesn't climb anymore and doesn't feel like myself. And, you know, candidly, we in, in wilderness medicine, you know, as I've been teaching this over the years, we use this shorthand basically to say that's a tension pneumothorax, that's a head injury, and this is what you do. Um, but not knowing, as I know, because I do this work, this is pattern recognition. There's a predictable sequence of events that lead to you feeling a certain way. And to me, it's predictable. And in times of stress, like we're in right now, I can see it almost coming at people. I can predict who's going to get hurt and who's not, not because they have a magic wand, but because it's like any other injury type where if you go out, you know, on a, if you know your knee's been hurting for a long time and someone said you got a meniscal tear and it's just a matter of time and you go pull that toboggan on a double black, it is a matter of time. And this is how this injury is. So I think recognizing it and calling it something, you know, we've spent so much of our rescue lives knowing how to, to get folks out of tree wells and, you know, recover them quickly, et cetera. It's time for us to have a a collective understanding and recognition, like, Hey, you know what happened to you after you lost your friend, or, you know, what happened to you after that near miss? What we say is that um, the definition I like to work with with stress injuries, it's a a common and predictable exposure injury. I would say a depletion injury now as well. That is mitigatable and reversible once it's recognized. So we need this name recognition and, I think this is why calling it a stress injury and shout out to, to the TAR article that we did earlier this year to really name that, right? To say, this is an injury type, just like hurting your leg or your back um, in that slide. And we need to support it in the same way. So who's susceptible to this? Is it just rescuers? Is it, I mean, my, the population that was probably listening to this 
um, podcasts are, are avid recreational backcountry users, whether they're snowmobilers, skiers, or snowboarders, and as well as professionals, right? So, mm-hmm. given our population, are we all susceptible to this? You think? Well, there's good news and bad news on this. Um, I mean, I guess the good news is we're all in it together. And maybe the bad news is all humans are susceptible to this injury type. It's an exposure injury. I like to think about it more like carbon monoxide or a hazmat situation that with enough um, exposure over enough time, everyone will succumb. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone's going to get hurt all the time. And we're always curious how some people have lost half of their friends and still seem to be unfazed where other people, there is a formula to that. Certainly that the more depleted and the more stressed that you come in, your worldview, that's all going to affect how much a particular incident feels like it's happening to you. But we're really talking about the human machine. And if you break stress down to the basics, stress is just a challenge that our bodies face that we have to physically or emotionally overcome, right? It's like getting to the point in the trail, you have to ski right or ski left, Uh, We have to respond to it. When it becomes a stress injury, though, is really when we hit a place of overwhelm and helplessness, like I can't respond to this. And then our amazing human machines adaptively flip a switch that say, now I'm in survival mode. And what I would say the basics of a stress injury formation is just when your survival switch gets switched on after a near miss, after you lose someone else, or even just after what I've seen in forecasters a lot, we'll get back to who can, just the depletion, uh, what Scott Gunther, my friend, calls the heavy burden of responsibility of just making these backcountry decisions, these these, um, bigger decisions, closing mountains when people are mad at you, closing roads when people don't like it, you know, and I would say in that case, the heavy, we should come back to that, but that the weight of that and just getting run down over time sets us up for the injury type. But, you know, all of us, if you're going to recreate heavily in the backcountry, ski mountaineering, alpinism, um, we know there's inherent risk. Why do we do it? Because we love it because we can't not do it because we get up in the morning dreaming about it and go to bed thinking about what we're going to climb tomorrow. But the inherent risk, and I think that what we should say now is fair warning, there is an injury type that we don't talk about getting into this um, area of passion, which is most of us are going to lose people we love. Most of us are going to have near misses. And most of us are going to go through some experience ourselves that changes our wiring because it was overwhelming. And that's you know, that, that means that if, if we know that that injury is a possibility, we can start looking for it and mitigating it. And we could talk about quote unquote, preventing it early on. But if we never knew it was in the room, we would never have a shot at, at changing that outcome. Right. And that's why just putting a name to it and, and bringing about recognition is so important. Um, so, so you you just said something about quote unquote being preventative about it. Um, if we are as a community and backcountry riders, if we're accepting a certain level of risk, right? You go to an avalanche course and you learn how to do avalanche rescue, right? That is the worst case scenario. 
We're not saying that you're learning that skill because we expect somebody to go get caught in an avalanche. We're also teaching many preventative measures to recognize terrain, recognize unstable signs in the snowpack, and avoidance really is what we're we're preaching in avalanche education. But if we're we're saying that that is a possibility and and that's the cost of entry is being you know being accepting that risk that's what we do every day we go out um so how how can we be a little bit more preventative about dealing with these stress injuries that that many of us probably deal with well i think you've actually really named and you're being proactive about about the first one is just bringing this injury type onto the radar Mm-hmm. That when you have friends or colleagues, or if it's even yourself, where you notice the fuse is getting short, you don't, everybody else is a problem. Everything is a problem. You want to maybe, and sometimes when I see this injury type progress, it's not that you stop doing the thing that you love. What I found in really elite athletes and the folks who are really passionate about this after losses and stress injury formation, the farther into the injury type, you do more and more of the thing with more and more risk. And candidly, if someone tries to stop you and you tell them to get the, you know what, out of the way, because you have to do this. And so losing contact with maybe yourself and the people around you, because you have to do this. I can't stop and feel I have to keep going. You know, for some people, it's drinking more. For some people, it's not sleeping well. For some people, it's relationships breaking down. But for a lot of people, as this injury progresses, it's just more and more of like, I don't feel like myself. And we could ask, you know, you could line up 10 people. It would all look the same and a little bit different at the same time to be like, I don't think I want to do this anymore. This has lost my luster. This is the only skill I have. I have to do it. Or we see this play out where people are, um, you know, really just, again, everything, the public never listens. It's them against us, but it's a big problem, right? And life isn't so fun anymore, but you just keep pushing through it. If we knew that that feeling that I'm not myself anymore feeling wasn't just how life feels. It was actually an injury type. Then we could start to mitigate it. So what I would say is the prevention, if you will. So my dear friend, Drew Hardesty, he he likes to hammer on this and I'm with him. We kick around this term pre-traumatic stress management. Like what if you knew at the beginning of your career or what if we knew at this begin- the beginning of this season, because to be honest, we do, that this is going to be a really busy rescue season. There's going to be a lot of people using, um, utilizing the backcountry. That means there'll be a lot of, you know, unfortunately, near misses and incidents. And then we have to do it with one hand tied behind our back because of COVID and because of certain things that are going on. If we knew that, then we could, in essence, pre-resource. We could make sure that we're leveraging things that keep us alive and able to respond to complexity. So follow me here, and I hope I don't, this doesn't get too complex, but these stress injuries form my favorite definition of trauma is a stimulus that overwhelms one's capacity to integrate it. 
which means we could go after all the bad things that feel like too much for us or, and try and make those go away or be untrue, or we could improve or boost our capacity to integrate hard things. We leverage that by what we know from the literature, being in connection with each other, making sure that our human machines are ready for complexity, sleeping, eating, feeling like ourselves and our bodies, being fit, um, and having space and room to actually let these things roll through us and integrate. So all of that to say, you know, looking down the barrel of this season, which we, you know, on our patrols know is going to be highly unusual. We have to call it for what it is. It's an unusual deployment season. We have to write some new rules for ourselves so that we have more time at night to wind down, more time to connect to the people we love. And frankly, we have to work harder at this because of COVID right now. It doesn't just come easy. We have to be mindful with intention. Um, We have to make sure that we're checking in with our bodies when our bodies go, I don't want to do this today. Then we have to listen. Um, And just really watching for smoke under the the hood, if you will, early. Because if you catch this early, then you can leverage those things that build capacity again and I mean, candidly, there's no magic. Um, we like to joke about like fairy dust to make trauma go away. What we do, what we know is just getting people to a place where conditions are right, like they've always been. You know, trauma and grief have been moving through our cultures for millennia. We, and usually without therapists. Well, how does that work? Well, the idea is that we're made for this, but we need the right soil, right conditions, again, which gets back to leveraging connection, feeling like your people have your back, decreasing shame and what ifs after incidents happen and preloading being your best self before you go into times of exposure, help you come out sort of somewhat unscathed on the other side. Hmm. couple things there. Uh, um, when I hear you talk about connection, you know, I immediately think teamwork and whether you're a rescue team um, mm-hmm. or a ski patrol or fellow guides in a guiding operations or outdoor education. Um, you know, we, it, we really need to now more than ever look out for each other. And mm-hmm. I've heard you speak a bit and and explain and show some images of the stress continuum, right? This doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up one day and you're like, oh shit, I have a stress injury, right? It's, it's, it's going to happen over time, um, with cumulative effect. And so I think if you're listening to this and you go into the show notes, you'll be able to click on a link and pull up this stress continuum example. And, and Laura, you have, um, developed these for, many different teams, right? Whether it's a search and rescue team, you've done it with ski patrol, I believe. And and this one that we'll show an example of was developed at Eldora, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was was hoping you could talk a little bit about that continuum. Yeah, I should first say that I I didn't develop it. I adapted it. and, And really, I should say the teams I work with did the work. So you mentioned Eldora Patrol, absolutely. I would say in the national parks, um, folks have fought for their own um, sort of versions of this. We're actually trying to, to adapt the stress 
continuum for avalanche forecasters. So we have more of a sense of how this rolls out. And then if you look at the AAC Grief Fund website, they've done a really good job. Some of the folks I've worked with there, they, they did this for climbers, which might be a language that also really resonates. But that being said, I I don't have to say that I stole this from the military because we apparently paid for it with our tax dollars. But I did go, um, I did base this off of the combat and operational stress first aid model of a stress continuum. And they used to use this in deployment actually to, to track where people in the green, they were good to go. In the yellow, they were stress impacted, maybe short fused, irritable. In the orange, we started to see things like isolation, relationship problems. Um, I hate to, to put performance into this because folks in our world will perform even into the red exceedingly well. That's part of the problem. Um, but definitely concentration issues, um, lack of meaningful engagement in the things people used to love, um, and a lot of anxiety. And then finally in the red, you know, this is where we see panic attacks, um, more severe um, isolation, withdrawal from life, or as I mentioned, exceeding risk-taking behaviors without real connection to the consequences, et cetera. The reason as a clinician, I love this model is that up until now, we've been using um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, as the only word or language for this. Like you either have it or you don't. It's kind of like you said, there's nothing. And then all of a sudden you wake up with PTSD. In some ways that would be like waking up with diabetic ketoacidosis. Like, no, this has been going on for a long time. And so I really loved this continuum for the visual aspects to be able to say, yeah, before you get into the red, which is probably where we put things like PTSD, there was probably a time when you were in the orange and your partner knew you weren't doing well and your friends had a suspicion you were drinking too much, and but nobody. Before that, there was probably that yellow moment where you went from green to yellow where you're like psyched, like, I can't believe they pay me to do this. I love this job. I love getting out here on the weekends. And there was this something clicked over where it's all of a sudden like, Eh, this isn't so fun anymore. And I'm starting to think everybody's an asshole and I'm starting to be an asshole. And, but that's early, you know? And so the reason we've been using this on a lot of rescue teams, we use it for the individual and I say rescue teams, but again, in climbing, um, we, we also discuss this from a risk standpoint um, in the national parks, we've actually embedded the stress continuum into the green, amber, red, um, system for those of you who use that for risk management and rescue. So Denali, Yosar, um, Jenny Lake, Rocky Mountain, all these, you know, helicopter and ops teams, we've really considered putting it at a place where we could stop and say, Hey, if I'm in the orange under team selection and team fitness, am I the best person for this job? Is there something else I could do? Can we, basically the idea is, can we reverse this before it gets all the way up into the orange and red. And so we've been using that for the individual, but very soon into the work, we found out that teams actually could be stress injured. And I work with a lot of ski patrols and a lot of rescue teams. And I will tell you, you know, I can be in the room for about five minutes now before I tell you if this team is stress injured, you know, by the way they communicate with each other. If, 
you bring a new idea to that team and everything's a problem and maybe in two years, but we don't have enough resources and we don't have enough time and it's a stupid idea. I mean, maybe it is a stupid idea, but maybe it's that you're so depleted already that you don't have room for that complexity. This has helped us to see where people might get hurt with critical incident and exposure. And let me give you an example. I work in urban fire uh, and law enforcement. So if we have an officer-involved shooting or some very significant multi-casualty incident makes the news, I'm not so interested in how that person is doing at the three-day mark you know, after the incident happens because the human machine's meant to not be doing well at that point, right? I'm more interested in how they were doing the day before the incident happened because if they were already in the orange or red, if they were already depleted, if the world already felt overwhelming when they saw that person fall or when someone was injured in front of them or when this happened, it's going to feel to them like it's happening to them And so they're much more likely to get hurt. So we've started to use this continuum as a self-awareness model and then to keep an eye on each other. Now, here's why it matters for teams and communities and tribes like ours. Um, if, If communities or teams or families or relationships or especially patrols are in the orange or red, And I've seen this go down when they lose one of their own, for instance, when someone's swept, when there's, you know, you lose a fellow patrol or you lose someone else you care about an avalanche. There's not enough connection in that moment. There's not enough resources for that team to go through a normal grieving process together. So it gets stuck. However, I've also seen it happen on thriving teams that are cohesive, that have each other's back, that care about each other. When they lose one of their own, you don't see the typical blame. You don't see the if onlys. You see a lot of support and that grief response moves through like it's supposed to. And the teams don't get hurt. And so the people on the teams don't get hurt. So what I think is a new technology in, in incident support isn't trying to find experts and bringing in a Laura McGladry every time you lose someone you care about in an avalanche or have something big happen on a team or in your own community. I think it's preloading the connection, the four units, the, the sort of tribal threads that like pick up your kids for each other and bring each other meals and have each other's back so you can actually... If you're already connected and can grieve together, what I find time and again is that you don't need someone like me. It just moves through. Now, I've just said a lot and I've actually just, I'm breaking all sorts of codes and the like, you know, this is a controversial statement because, you know, some of us who do this job like to think, you know, you need someone to come in and fix trauma on the back end, but it's actually not not how trauma works. You have to integrate trauma. It has to become part of your story. You make sense of it together. You live it together and it find, it lands in you somewhere and then you move on. And, and if we're lucky when we go through these big things and losses with connection and with enough meaning and time to pull it all together, we become something we weren't before. 
So we don't even want resilience. That means you stretch and go back to where you were. The end goal of going through these hard things, and candidly, the reason I think the avalanche community is so compelling is because the community has been through so much loss together and has been connected in a lot of ways and has elders that speak into this and say, this is how it goes and this is what we're going to do next. And that's what makes it a place that people want to be a part of. And we want to see that. We want to name that and keep it going. Now we want to do it on purpose because we know how much it matters in our community. And this is why I think it's been so important to see the movement away from blaming each other after slides and pointing fingers to really coming into a culture for you for each other. Like, hey, we're in this together because I really think that sets us up to not be a quote-unquote traumatized crowd, but a sort of a resourced, wiser, and more connected, meaning-filled community. How's all that land with you? <laughs> well, Laura, I think now more than ever in this age of COVID, um, that, that sort of reminds me of two things, that, that trauma is inherent in our communities, in, in our sure. community of, of skiing and backcountry riding. It's going to happen. Wait, could I stop you there, though? Because I think this is really important. I think grief is, in, is inherent mm. in our community. But there is a difference between grief and trauma. Grief is actually ordered in a way, right? It's, we live, we die, we know what we're signing up for. Trauma, remember, is this is overwhelming and I was helpless and there was nothing I could do. So I actually want to push our national conversation on this to say that we can be, we can grieve and thrive together. We don't have to be traumatized all the time. So loss is inherent to our community, but I'm not a hundred percent sure that trauma is. And I know that's a controversial statement, but the difference is, if we feel like we have practices and rituals that support us after anticipated loss, some of this we can kind of say, you know, I've worked with teams who've lost people and been surprised by it, but have also found meaning in it. Like, yep, that is part of doing what we do and what we love and it lands for them. So I hate to interrupt you, but I do want to like push forward that, Because trauma, like you're going to get traumatized if I say that in an Abby One course, like, hey, listen, this is like cigarette hanging out of my mouth. Like, listen, kid, you're getting into this. (laughs) You're going to lose everybody you love and end up burned out like me smoking cigarettes. So we want to change the messaging to say it is highly likely that you'll get injured by this at some point. You will experience things that you didn't expect that were overwhelming to you. And there's a way home. And that's, I guess, what I mean by like fair warning is like, let's watch for this. Let's mitigate it early. And we might, I don't mean to sound overly optimistic, but we could move away from saying that everyone's going to get traumatized, which is an incredibly helpless feeling, to we're likely to go through a grief process together. And there's another side. How does that land me busting in and interrupting you on that? I love it, Laura. That's great. So, so yeah, given that we, we will probably grieve at some point in, in some way, shape or form, we can prepare for it. It also just reminds me of, of the times right now with COVID. And I keep hearing people say like, once things get back to normal, right? Like we're always evolving and we're always needing to adapt, whether it's in our everyday lives, navigating 
COVID and wildfires and whatever, whatever the next thing this crazy world is going to throw at us. Um, and so, you know, it, it just makes me think about that a bit, I guess, what you were just saying of just adapting and moving on and, and, and allowing the process to happen. I don't know. I, I don't have nearly as much clairvoyant um, things to say as, as you do about that, but, but it strikes very resonantly right now in the age of COVID, I think, which brings up another point of like, how do we deal with some of this in the age of COVID? Um, you know, I, I know just like reaching out and giving somebody a hug can oftentimes, you know, like be a, make a big difference in their grieving process and you can't totally. do that anymore yes. you know just being physically present is is difficult so what are what are some ways that you're thinking about moving mm-hmm. moving forward in this adapting not not thinking about going back to the old normal but just adapting to what's on our plate right now well i think i think you should give yourself more credit because mm-hmm. i think you just named it uh, adapting in real time So what I will tell you, I've been supporting first line responders now for six months. And when I saw this coming, um, I will, my Alaska folks will know, I mean, I was three days from flying to Denali to work with the team. And I talk about my own stress injury, like, no, I mean, like we all felt it like, no, I was going somewhere. We were all, we had these plans, you know, close that beautiful mountain for the first time ever, right? Like, what is this? And yet, as I watch people, I will say, um, just like, you know, I, I called, I know I mentioned Drew already, I called Drew earlier, Drew Hardesty earlier this year. And I said, what are you doing this season? He goes, I'm just, I'm just going to get to know the snowpack, you know? And I, what I loved about that, like this idea, it's not static, it's going to change over and over. And this pandemic has changed. We went through a phase right? Of like, oh, we're just going to, I don't know, watch Netflix and, you know, get through this and then we'll be out of this in two weeks. That didn't happen. And it, the people who tried that, well, what I can tell you as a mental health clinician suffered because when rescue didn't come, they gave up sort of despairingly. And then we went through a collective grief process together. And then, you know, we're going through another one right now and we'll go through more. And so we are going through, I think in, in, I will say patrol and snow science folks in this industry is like ISSWs canceled this year. Like the, the things that we rely on are the, the ground is moving, but the good news is a, that pandemics have always had a beginning and an end. So we know there will be an end. However, the folks that do the best I watched in all hazards across all teams are the ones who are responding to what's in front of them right now. So rather than, you know, holding on to what was and like, we're going to just do ski patrol like we've always done. We're going to do backcountry rescue like we've always done. We're going to, it's going to be different. And if you can let go of the old rules and make new ones, that kind of agility, and we're going to need it this avalanche season, to create new rituals in real time, that's powerful. And that gives us that, that is what combats that helplessness that causes trauma, that we can do something. And so 
um, the folks who will do, this is my prediction. You can call me up next year and tell me how I did, but the folks who will stay the most resilient and be less injured this season will be the ones who have capacity to see the world as it is right now, not as we want it to be or not going back to what it was. Basically, we're not going to resist it. We're going to just open up to what is. Those folks will find, those will be our elders and leaders. So in this avalanche season, for instance, let's take this grief process. I got a call in the heart of the shutdown about an avalanche in a community that was devastating to everyone. And as a part of the rescue team, they said how we can't do any of our rituals. We usually potluck. We usually have a fire. We usually, you know, get to each other's houses. We gather on a porch. We drink scotch. We have to find, create, we can't just bag that. We were depending on those rituals to integrate and grow and heal and make meaning. So we have to make new ones. And I will, there's a lot of things that could be said. And I hope your listeners will write in and tell you what their new rituals around grief and loss. I will tell you one of the things that we've done in the national parks and on rescue teams, we've stolen it from fire, is this thing called the 333. And I think it works for grief too. Can I tell you about it? Yes, please do. So, so we're using this as a, you know, we use it after critical incidents, but really we're, we're using it to get back to the basics and create new rituals. And so after something significant happens and let's say a near miss and near misses and actual losses are the same in your brain. So we should treat them the same way. After something big happens, we try and set our calendars to connect at the three-day, the three-week, and the three-month point. And here's what we look for and do. At the three-day point, often in rescue, and if you're listening and you want to steal this and take it to your patrol or whatever, please do, and I can share the resources on this. But at the three-day point, we check in on that stress continuum. We're more interested in how you were doing before this thing came down because that will predict how much support you're going to need, right? Folks who are already in the orange are going to need people to draw closer. Folks in the green predictably will do better at that moment. So we have already gotten in the habit on these teams. We use a stress continuum morning meetings every day for patrol. Where are you on the stress continuum? We just pull it in ad nauseum. I'm sure people are like, oh, here comes Laura McGladry in the stress continuum again. Fine. So it's in our common language at the three day point. Um, we just basically check in and say all humans are supposed to not feel great at this point. Right. I had a climber recently call me um, after witnessing a climbing fatality and say, I'm not sleeping. I'm not, um, I'm not focusing at work. I don't feel like myself. I think I may have a stress injury. And I was like, beautiful. I love that you're recognizing that. But everybody after they, the brain sees something like this feels and acts like they have a stress injury at the three-day mark. That's your normal body and brain doing everything you're supposed to do to readjust and recalibrate. Give it the right soil, get connected, make space for integration, listen to your body, do the things that feel good right now, make room, and let's just see what happens. At the three-week point, we are checking in again. And in, and in rescue teams, we're actually using a form that has us check in how our body's physically doing. Folks who are still at a heightened state of arousal, like 
I keep thinking about it, re-experiencing, I'm irritable, I'm not sleeping, I'm not myself, I can't concentrate. By three weeks, your body and brain should have probably landed this event. And what we know is if it's still at that heightened state of arousal, you're much more correlated with um, development of stress injury formation. There's a form called the trauma screening questionnaire we can put in the notes if folks want to take it for themselves. If you get six or more of those or seven, it's recommended that you see um, a more resource person like a therapist. Happy to share some resources that are nationally emerging for this. And then at the three-month mark, this one's important for grief, for a grief process, that we mark our calendars to check in again. Hey, how is that landing for you? Maybe folks are doing fine. Maybe they're, you know, still thinking about it, but culturally, you know, one of the very experienced climbing rangers just shared with me recently, um, they, they lost someone um, on the team that was really important to them. They call each other so routinely and say, hey, I'm still thinking about them, are you? And that is a powerful practice. Right now, culturally, when people grieve or experience trauma, we leave it to them to have to come back to us and tell them that, tell us we're not doing okay. When really we should be assuming if there's exposure that they might've gotten injured, just like the hazmat exposures or carbon monoxide and reaching out to them. So this one's simple. We could use it for grief. And um, again, I'll shout out to the AAC Grief Fund. A lot of really good work's happening there. If you're someone who's listening to this and you're thinking at the three mark, I'm still not okay at the three weeks and at the three month, I've never landed. I never became myself again. There's a directory of clinicians um, you know, there that speak climber, I think, or that's a good place to start. Um, but the, the big point in this new, this is back to COVID, creating these new rituals. If we don't get to see each other every day, if we don't have our routine check-ins, if we're on Zoom calls and not in person, then we need to be proactive and put it on our calendars and seek each other out and do things on purpose that used to just be handed to us. Hmm. Laura, so say say something goes goes kind of into the orange or red zone, and and it's identified that maybe I I need some help, and I maybe I need to take some time off from the team or the ski patrol, and mm-hmm. and seek some outside help. Um, certainly, no shame in doing that, and and we need to be as a community perhaps even more open to doing that. Things have certainly changed since the 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 turn of the century or, or before with kind of the old guard, you know, suck it up, throw in a Copenhagen, go do your job. And then right. like maybe drink six to 10 beers and, and do it again. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and, um, so, so if people are getting help, do you have any suggestions for, um, reintegration into the team. This is actually a listener-based question, which I love that hopefully this season there's going to be a lot more interaction with the community through sending in questions for the for the interviewees on this podcast. And so this was a listener. Hey, that's a new ritual, right? Yeah. Now that it's COVID, we need more interaction. We need to hear each other and back and forth. So good for you. Absolutely. Yes. So thank you to the listener who posed this question, but I'm rambling I'll get to the question. The question is how are there some strategies to reintegrate into the team? Um, I know if I was in that position, I would probably feel a little bit self-conscious about mm-hmm. 
the help that I sought out and then the reintegration. Could you speak a bit to that? Yeah, I mean, I think partly we're going to have to decide as a community to change the way that we look at this injury. So you would not be a person on a patrol, again, who threw out their, blew out their ACL, who then had to go get surgery, go through physical therapy, and then reintegrate on the team. I mean, unless you're like, I should have known better, et cetera, et cetera, but that happens, right? But this is an injury type. So we've now included this, you know, again, in the wilderness medicine sect, head injury, chest injury, stress injury, spine injury. So if that's why the language matters so much, this is an exposure type injury and it's predictable and it's going to touch all of us almost guaranteed in some way, shape or form over the course of our professions. We all know it. Some of us hide it. Some of us don't, but this gets to us in very different ways. So part of the conversation here is that we start to call this an injury type. And when you get injured, you go take care of it and then you come back and reintegrate. I can tell you from working, especially in urban law enforcement and fire, that when you're offline for this injury type, what helps when people come back to the team is that we don't ask all the questions about, you know, we don't often say to someone who injured their, you know, back out of fire, like, what'd you, what happened to you? How'd you let this happen to you? Right. We're in that habit. We want to know all about the details. This one is harder to describe and explain. So I think, being more point positive in reintegration, I think it's really helpful to have a script, right? I realized I got to the point where I had a stress injury and I was, I had to, I really needed to take time to recharge or refill. Something simple like that. Enough said, don't really want to say more. That's your script, right? You get to go back in. Um, I will tell you though, if I can inspire folks to, to reintegrate that the people who have been through this process and done their work, I will tell you, become the Yodas on a lot of teams. And what I find out is for every person who does this, there's five other people on the team thinking about it, knowing they should do it too, talking to their partners about it, um, and I know this because the people who reintegrate hear these sideline stories riding the lift up over and over and over again. And so if we had the courage to know that that you're being a bit of a prophet on a team to call this out, I mean, these injuries are not just psychological injuries. These are these injuries, when we secrete cortisol at this level over time and drink this much to cope with it or whatever we do, turn into things like cancer like pathological fractures, like career-ending injuries. And so we really have to, in the same way we, you know, the patrols that I work on, we do some, I'm sure your patrols do it too. We do some ridiculous stretching in the morning, sometimes with disco music, sometimes not. We kind of make a joke about it because it's awkward, right? We're all stand up and let's do our stretches, you know, and it's not part of our culture. We have to do the same with this. Right. We have to start. That's why we talk about this in morning meeting because everyone has a continuum and on patrols. And I'm going to, I'm going to declare that avalanche season will not be this different. Many of us will come into the season in a nice lemon cello and we will end the season like a little typewriter, you know, uh, in what Yosemite likes to call lava. Right. That's predictable. 
So what can we do to mitigate that in the midst to not get as injured? And I think once we bring all that into common culture, it's much easier to come back and be like, I'm actually doing what's best for my performance, what's best for my family and what's best for the team by doing this work. And hopefully, I think Avalanche is making this tremendous shift out of shame and blame into real camaraderie and a collective, like, how do we move forward? I will tell you this. I think that in forecasting, we probably still have some work to do to name the tremendous stress impact of forecasting on folks, right? And I, um, I think I know this is okay to share now, but on one of the patrols that I work with, one of the folks who was, you know, who was clearly kind of getting to that point with the public and irritability, et cetera, it was the last day. It was a rain on snow event. Everybody, it was the last day of the season. Everyone's hooping and hollering in costumes. And I look over and I see the one embedded forecaster on the patrol with his head in his hands. And that moment like just has always stayed with me. Like nobody knows the weight of if I make this decision and it's wrong, they'll be talking about it all over the country and someone's life's on the line. If I make this decision and nothing happens, Half of the mountain will be mad at me because I closed down a train. They wanted to ski in big powder. And the weight of that or the weight of making a decision and then having someone get injured in the backcountry, et cetera, like we need to start making that more overt in the conversation because that's where we're really seeing wear and tear and forecasting, which is a very different stress pattern than, than the avid backcountry and skier who the wear and tear is watching the train and losing people and, and also having exposure in a very particular way. But I also think just if you're a forecaster, you know what I'm talking about. Probably there's very particular patterns between backcountry forecasters and, and the um, DOT forecasters just trying to make, especially if you look at like a 2019 avalanche cycle year here in Colorado, I mean, talk about a setup for stress injury, but you're doing it right now. And just the more we talk about it, the more we just see it there, the more you can reintegrate in your patrols, the more we recognize it. And people will know what to do. This is a cool injury type because once you recognize it, you start going, you know what I need to do? That that forecaster with his head in his hands, he's so amazing. I saw him the next year. He's like, once I knew what this was, he took the year off. He's doing great. Everybody says he's doing great now. He tells me he's doing great. He just needed to know this isn't a me thing. This is an injury. I need to take care of it. Right. And, and it's so amazing that that can happen without anything physically happening. Even, you know, like nothing bad happened and that person still feels that way. So I think that's great that you're bringing about awareness to what I might call kind of the cumulative effect of heavy decision-making, right? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So a couple questions here, Laura. One is, are you seeing people use this stress continuum to are you, are you saying that everybody in a morning meeting of a ski patrol, for example, would say would would shout out a color for their given day? No, and and I wouldn't recommend that actually. Although um, I can put a shout out to the Rocky Mountain Patrol. They have a they have a um, a little whiteboard where they put magnets mm. or four colors of magnets where you can anonymously come in, put up your magnet. And then by the time you start morning meeting, you have a sense 
okay, we've got four greens, two yellows, two oranges, and one red on our team. That is the sum of our team today. You don't have to know who it is. So that's a really cool way. I know that, um, so Teton County Search and Rescue, they've got a cool practice going these days where at every meeting, they'll all pick a color anonymously again, and then take the snapshot for that meeting. And so they can track over time. You could do this over busy seasons. You could do this on a patrol to know where you started and then how folks are doing, because again, the team's the sum of the parts. The patrol that I am um, invited with, they, one of them just, they have a little flip book and every morning as part of their personal risk assessment, where am I most likely to get hurt today? How can I mitigate it? They write down where they think they are on the continuum. It's personal. I don't have to share it with anybody else. And, you know, the stress continuum is meant to be a self-awareness tool. It's never a, hey, I think you're in the orange, but hey, where do I think I am right now? Um, the way I think it's actually very best used is to be shared with partners. Mm. So often, um, you know, I work with the one high angle team when I, I wanted them to calibrate the stress continuum before the season started. So they would know, what do I do in orange? What do I do in red? And they'll just sit there and scratch their big beards or not if they, you know, don't have them. And like, I don't know. I don't think I've ever been in the orange. And then I say, well, just text your wife <laughs> or your husband. And then brrr, there's this long list of like, your eye starts to twitch. You start to do this thing. You drink more coffee. You don't go to bed. You're pacing at night. You listen to loud music, whatever it is. Your partners or the people who love you are such good side view mirrors and having a buddy system on a team, which is what I advocate in deployment seasons, like these really heavy duty ones we're in, like for wildland fire, someone who you, you tell them how you think they're doing, and then you let them tell you with this common language. And so, um, so there's no group sharing allowed on this one because who would, no one would tell the truth about it. We're still unfortunately in a place where we're, we're, um, we think our performance depends on where we are on this continuum. So I want to debunk that. I Responders will perform all the way into red at great detriment to themselves. This is not about their performance ever. It's really just about the cost to your body because of the stress. And can we mitigate that? Mm -hmm. So that's how we're using it. Um, Laura, I want to shift gears briefly here to talk about how can recreation, the recreationist population in, in backcountry skiing and riding, how can, how are they going to potentially be affected by this if something does happen? And just some, are, are there any different strategies to, yes. to preload that for somebody that's not used to responding or not trained to respond to an emergency situation? Yeah, let me tell you my bias after more than 20 years in emergency medicine. You know, we say we think the trained responder has this like special ability to see traumatic stress and just put it in some pocket and never hurts them. We just train our young early to act like it doesn't bother you and move on, right? That's not a great system. And so we don't want to do the same for the recreationalists. Like all of us who see someone else buried someone in an impactful event. And let me say this, the real thing that should be on our radar is those of us who are exposed to grieving families and partners on scene, because candidly, I think that is probably where we see the greatest amount of injury and impact. 
So if you are on scene with a grieving family or a partner who's just been buried or something like that, just count on it affecting you. And like any other injury, let's say you got, you know, you hit a tree out there, count on needing to take time and space and get connection and resource to, to take care of it. So the, the only problem with traumatic stress is we didn't know we were supposed to take care of it and we didn't know how to take care of it. So we just kept going and then the wounds get infected and then they fester. But I would say, you know, for each other, if you are involved in something big like that, consider sharing the 333 with someone else that you care about and have them check in with you. Do something like that to say, this is probably going to leave an impact on me. It's meant to. And the good news about these events is that once you get through the five phases of grief, the old Kubler-Ross, like anger, acceptance, they've added a sixth in the years since she developed those, which is meaning. This was given to you for a reason. There's meaning here and you can integrate this but you have to pay attention to it. So I would just say my, my best advice is that it may not affect you at all. It may not affect you until you have a child. It may not affect you in for 10 or 20 years, but pay attention to it because without mitigation, it's likely to leave some kind of impact. So caretake it, which means reaching out to the community, find an elder and I, what I mean by that is find the pros, find someone who taught your course, who's been through a lot of these losses and just talk through them. How did it land for them? Just reach out and connect afterwards. I think people get hurt when they see that they don't know what to do. Everybody else seems fine, especially the pros. Doesn't bother me. I've seen this a million times and we just figure it must be us. And that's not true. How about resources? Resources if people are um, having a hard time finding somebody to talk to in the community and they, they just need to reach out. What, I, I know that there's a few out there, the Responder Alliance, um, SOAR, or Survivors of Outdoor Adventures mm-hmm. and Recovery. You've mm-hmm. mentioned the AAC Grief Fund. Mm-hmm. I've heard some rumors of something along those same lines and within the avalanche world that might be coming along soon. Yep. Uh, yes. Yeah, maybe just speak to the resources people could check out. I mean, I think you just did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you did a great job. I agree with all of those. Um, we did, uh, you know, if you go to the AAC, the psych, so there's great vignettes of folks who we respect in climbing who have been through a grief process on there. And I think that's a way we leverage this connection with other folks. Um, I did some modules on there about grief versus trauma um, and what this all looks like, the role of shame, that sort of thing. Um, that, that site does have access to clinician directory. Um, I think they're doing great work. I I have also heard the rumors of this, of um, similar things brewing and avalanche. And I would say if you're a person who wants to speak to, to that, to reach out, I hope it's okay to say to reach back out to you and have you connect because, I think um, this is a moment where we need to see this kind of collectively move forward and change the common language and the common culture. Responder Alliance is really a cache of resources um, and also a group, a collective of folks who um, speak into their own cultures, whether that be avalanche or rescue or fire, to, to change culture. Um, not That's not a clinical resource, but I think that 
if we kind of circle back to how we started this community, this conversation, that connecting into community. Uh, and, and let me say this, if you've been through something and you now feel like you're moving to the other side, the way that we, you know, when I said that our brain clicks into like, my job is just survive all the time, efficacy or, or helping other people or being a resource to other people actually does help us to heal some of this helps us to land for us. Now, that being said, don't do the work until you've done, you've taken care of that wound because we don't, it doesn't help us when we're still in the throes of it to go tell our story and aerosolize that or have everyone else tell us their stories. But once you've kind of found your way to the other side of this, that was given to you. That's part of your story now. And that meaning can be incredibly impactful for other people. I will say this, that we don't yet have a name and a culture around survivorship in climbing and avalanche. Um, I myself am a cancer survivor. And I remember when I, I got done um, with radiation, I remember actually calling Drew. We had a lot of conversations and I remember calling him and saying, what is the term in our culture? What is the initiation process for surviving something? When you come through that slide and you come out the other end and you're not who you were, but you're not who you're going to be yet. What is that? We need to cultivate that and take care of it. And so this is where we need the elders who have been on the other side of survival to come alongside people in that moment and say, hey, are you feeling that thing too, where everything looks different to you now and you don't, you know, you don't recognize the world anymore. You haven't found your new skin yet. Hey, this is how it's going to go. And let's name survivorship, not just as like, it's amazing to survive something, but it's complicated. And sometimes we need support surviving survival. And I would love to see, and I call out, I guess, and ask our avalanche community when people have been through these big near misses or accidents and come through the hospital or lost someone else, that part of the 333 is naming survivorship, which is this crazy combination of I'm so thankful I'm alive. I don't know how I feel about what happened to other people, and I don't know how the world looks now. So we need people to walk through us who've already been through that maze to support us on the other side. And like everything we talked about today, if we can name it, if we can name that you're in a period we call survivorship, it's a new initiation process. There's meaning here, but it's going to feel foggy for a very long time. So I'll just keep calling you and reminding you that there's a light up ahead of you and holding that flashlight for you. That's, that's powerful. That's, that's how we become more than we could have been. And that's, actually what makes back to the grief process there is a right order in living and dying and grieving together we make meaning of it we become more than we could have been we honor the people we've lost we honor them by getting through this and becoming more and then we and then we do it for someone else and that makes us like kind of say okay i'll sign up for all this that is not trauma that is right order. That's grief. And I really believe we can do this even more now during COVID because we know how much it matters. 
Well, we talk so much in the avalanche community about mentorship, right? And generally mm-hmm. you probably think about that in terms of being able to learn more about weather and assess snowpack stability, that sort of thing. But it seems like there's mentorship in a grieving process as well. And, yeah. and it seems like that's, that's what you're talking about. I really do like how you keep using the word leverage and like you're leveraging we're, we're trying to leverage our connections and our awareness of, about the, these stress injuries and take care of our, our community, um, both locally and globally, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a call to action. Mm-hmm. This is what we can do. Mm-hmm. The feeling of trauma is so often, I didn't know this was going to happen and there's nothing I can do. Mm. That is what I hear over and over again in my clinical seat. We actually do know this is going to happen. We know we're going to lose people. We know it's going to be a hard season with COVID. So our action actually helps us to, to move forward. And there is something we can do. And so that's this idea of pre-traumatic stress management. If we if we teach our quote unquote young that you are going to lose people and that's how that's right order. That's how it goes being in this community and loving and doing what we do. And you should know that someone should tell you, look you in the eye when you take your first Abby one and say, listen, if you do this long enough, you're going to lose someone that you really care about. There's inherent risk. And I'd like to also be able to say to them and your people will be there. Mm. And let, there's life after that. And here's how we do it, which is really powerful. So yeah, this is our call to action episode. And I'll be looking forward to hearing. I know that many people are already working on this. There's already tremendous momentum in this direction. And I have a tremendous sense of hope for where this is going, even in the midst of COVID this year. Right. And I'm, I'm sure you've been aware of, aware of it much longer than I have, but I, I feel like in the last five years, things have really gained traction and really kind of snowballed, so to speak, yep. um, about awareness of, of this topic. So, um, Laura, I really appreciate you taking the time today to, to talk with us about stress injuries and what we can do to um, preload, prevent, maybe not prevent them. I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say that we probably can't prevent them, but how to well, deal we can with predict them. them actually, but predict, but not prevent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So well, thanks for having me and thanks for your interest in this topic. And let's be curious together about what comes from the conversation and who rises up to be, you know, if you're listening to this and you think, am I an elder? Have I, do mm-hmm. I know enough? You probably are and you probably should. And my greatest hope is that you're listening to this and you think of, that three, 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 or maybe now it's been three years, but that mm. you still reach out and sort of do that thing where you say, Hey, I'm thinking about him still, or you or her still that we can connect on those things. So we don't put the onus of responsibility on the people who've lost that we could really reach out to each other and make that a new habit, a new culture. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for being on the show today. And, and of course you can find out more information um, about this topic from some notes in the show notes of this podcast. So thanks so much, Laura, and, and I hope you have a great rest of the fall and, and a great safe ski season out there. Thanks. Um, same to you. Enjoy watching the snowpack warm this year. Mm. Take care. Cheers. 
as we mentioned in that interview, I'll be adding some resources to the show notes. So the show notes should be chock full of resources. Uh, Don't hesitate to head on over there and, and click on some of those resources and find out more. If you're part of a team that's integrating techniques to create awareness and manage stress injuries, please reach out to us with the things that are working well. We'll try and circle back midwinter and share some of these stories and some of these ideas and and continue to create a dialogue of what's working well for people um, dealing with some some effects of stress injuries. Again, thanks a lot to Laura for taking the time to talk to us about this today. Go ahead and give us a follow on the social media. We are at the Avalanche Hour podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And as you may or may not be aware of, Um, We have some upcoming interviews that will be happening throughout the fall. And I'm trying to update the Instagram story feed with those upcoming interviews and also give listeners an opportunity to ask questions of those interviewees. You can just do it right through the Instagram interface there and I'll do my best to work those questions into the interviews. Of course, our artwork was created by Mike T., And for any of your graphic design or artwork needs, logos, anything like that, head on over to see Mike T. You can check out more of his work and contact him through his website at MikeT.com. That's M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. Music today, our intro tracks were by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks a lot for those tracks, Chris. I think everybody will be hearing a few more of his tracks on this season and taking us out of the hour is a track from Ketza. You can find more of their work at ketza.uk Until next time stay tuned, stay safe and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.